I've shared for the past two weeks the somewhat startling statistic that last year in McDowell County there were 276 marriages and 166 divorces. And so that must bring us to a place as the Church of Christ where we say, why and what can we do about it? I also want to say this morning, you may sit here this morning and you may have contributed to that statistic in the last year. And as you sit here this morning, I've never in all of my counseling seen a situation where it was 50-50. That's simply doesn't exist. There's usually one party that is the greater offending party in a divorce situation, and perhaps it wasn't you. And if it wasn't you, you sit here this morning grieved and guilty as I preach the sermon series. It isn't intended to grieve you, nor is it intended to guilt you. It is intended for all the married people in the room who want to get it right and all the single people in the room who want to find that person and want to do marriage well and to do it right. And so I just want to share that disclaimer as we uh, uh, truck into this passage. But we are talking about fighting well. Now, Ephesians 4 wasn't written about marriage to married couples, so you can apply it to any relationship that you're in. All right, so any work relationship, uh, all of the principles that we're going to look at can be applied. There are six of them, which means I have to fly. You have to listen fast. So let's do that together. First of all, we learn that you can speak the truth to one another. You can speak the truth to one another. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul, in his writing, gives a logical proof for why you ought to speak or you can speak the truth to each other. Here is the logical proof. You are members one of another. Now, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and we saw two weeks ago the mystery and the beauty of the body of Christ, the church being the body, and when you come to faith in Christ, you become a member of the body of Christ, and that is indeed mysterious. God's body uh, uh, through Christ is dynamically growing. People will hear the gospel today, be saved, and join and become a member of the body of Christ. Here's the logical argument. To lie to your husband, to lie to your wife, since you are one flesh, is to lie to whom? Yourself. That's the logical argument Paul is making. To lie to another member of the body of Christ, since we are all one body, is to lie to ourselves. It is self-defeating then. To lie to your husband, to lie to your wife, it is self-defeating. But husbands and wives do it often. I looked up a couple of resources this week that may help. One is from a book called 12 Lies, Wives Tell Their Husbands. And so let me uh, jot down or let me share some of these 12 with you. And uh, these are lies that uh, the authors contend, a husband-wife team wrote this book that wives tell their husbands. Number one, I love you just the way you are. All right, so, so uh, they may say that is the contention, but not really feel it. 
Uh, Number two, I'll always respect you as long as you deserve it. If you give respect simply because he deserves it, you will quit giving respect almost all the time. Number three, I'll love you for richer or for poorer. How many a wife said that at the altar, but when he lost his job, forgot what she said. And the house became immediately contentious. Number number five, I'm just skipping one. I'll never be unfaithful to you. Uh, Or nothing's wrong, I'm just fine. Whatever. That's what I want to say to that. Whatever. What's wrong? Nothing, nothing, honey. I'm fine. Okay. I don't need your help. I could take care of it. Men, I would just say to you, almost every time your wife says that, that means you better help me now, okay? Uh, We just don't have anything in common anymore. Please hear me. This is a serious statement made when love is dying in a relationship, and usually by the time this statement is made, there are two or three children you have in common, okay? And that's a serious matter. It's not a laughing matter. There are two or three children that you have in common, and what you're doing is directing the course of their lives for the rest of their lives. Uh, I love this one. Do I look good in this dress? I really want to know. No. If you went to the store and bought it and brought it home, you don't care what I think, all right? You look good in it, or you wouldn't have brought it home. So I'm saying yes every time. Um, You never talk to me. Um, not tonight, dear, I have a headache. All right. Uh, Dave Murrow has written a book. He's written a couple. One that really forms without you probably knowing a lot of the reasons that we do what we do at this church called Why Men Hate Going to Church. One of the indicators that we look at for church health at this church is how many men sit in here on Sunday morning. It's critical to us. Why? Because men are so crazy influential in their wives and their children coming to faith in Christ. And so Murrow's book that I read uh, a few years ago while working on my doctorate has been crazy influential to me. He has written another book called What Your Husband Isn't Telling You. Murrow shoots straight. He makes people angry just as a disclaimer. Here's what he says. This is what your husband would love to tell you. This is what he isn't telling you. He wants to be more honest with you, but you often become angry when he tells you how he's really feeling. Many wives train their husbands to conceal the truth from them. Because if every time you tell the truth, he tells the truth, wives, you get mad, guess what he's going to quit doing? Telling the truth. He's happiest when he's competent and in control of a situation. What your husband isn't telling you is that he is at his core a protector and provider. These are the two roles Adam assumed at the fall of man, and your husband wants desperately to succeed in those two roles. Every man I talk to who's worth his salt wants to get this right and feels badly if he thinks he isn't. All right, this may surprise you. He and his friends compare wives, and the man with the best-looking wife wins. Men do it all the time. He's afraid to admit weaknesses or fears, especially to you. He keeps a sexual scrapbook filled with images and memories. Most men would love to be rid of this scrapbook. Love to be rid of it. At work, he's a genius. At home, he's a dunce. If he shares his true feelings with his guy friends, most likely he'll be ridiculed. He's tired of being seen as 100% of the problem, men, your marriage. 
The key to his sexual enjoyment is your enjoyment. If you're having a good time, he's having a good time. He hates having to read your mind, tell him clearly what you want, and then be happy when you get it. He feels unappreciated at home. He's usually less excited about church than you are. He feels that you are the expert in religious matters, and he'd rather defer to you, though as we learned two weeks ago, he should never, ever do that. You say, wow, Jerry, those are pretty raw things. They are. And on either side, we kind of live in this in-between world where we are not totally honest with one another. And what ends up happening is we develop deeper friendships outside our marriages than within. We develop deeper relationships outside of our marriages than we do within. And when that begins to happen, men and women, listen to me, when that begins to happen, that deeper friendship that develops on the outside becomes a wedge between a husband and a wife. As hard as it is, you need to go home and say, okay, honey, where am I on some of the things that, was, that were in Jerry's sermon today? Where am I? I need to know. You could speak the truth to one another. Secondly, you may be surprised by this, but you could be angry with one another. Paul says here, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. A marriage without anger isn't a marriage. All right, we've got a lot of married people in this room this morning, so we're going to do a little, uh, just a little test here. How many of you who are married have ever been angry at your spouse? Raise your hand up high. Look around, all you single people, all right? Yes, some of you got mad on the way to church this morning, all right? It's just such recent history that I bring up, not ancient stuff, you know? It's just, just push rewind about 30 minutes, and uh, you'll go, okay, I can catalog it right now. It's interesting what Paul says. He says, be angry and do not sin. I would say to you that angry puts, anger puts you on the edge of a cliff every time. Anger puts you on the edge of a cliff every time, and you better not dance too long on the edge of that cliff. There are two kinds of couples, all right? Primarily, there are two extremes. There's the volatile couple. Uh, what does the volatile couple do? Well, they get mad, blow up, and blow out. All right, so that's what they do. If something happens, they blow up about it. They go after each other about it. Uh, they'll duke it out. What's the danger of that? Things are said in moments of volatility that if you could only take back, you would. Things are said during those times that get uh, filed upstairs somewhere and they're filed and they're brought up later at significantly inopportune times for you. Volatile couples are the couples that Paul is talking to when he says, be angry but do not sin. Uh, that's volatility and volatile couples are those. But then there are avoidant couples. The avoidant couples are who Paul is talking to when he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What do they do? They let anger fester. Uh, they have an issue and they run like crazy from it. They don't talk about it. If you don't talk about it, guess what? It will go away is the thinking. 
And so avoidant couples have issues, and they don't resolve the issues. They just hopefully think they'll go away, and so they just kind of let them be, let them go, until one day there's an eruption. Mount St. Helens has been lying silent for years, and all of a sudden there's an eruption, and the offended party who has kept a list, who has gone to bed night after night after night, lying asleep on a bed of anger, wakes up in a rage of fury, and the other partner is completely caught off guard by it. And that will devastate a marriage. Why? It's too much at one time. You've got volatile couples who say things they shouldn't and avoidant couples who don't say things they should. Somewhere in the middle is the place to be. Don't give the devil. Don't give the devil a foothold. Anger will result in a foothold for Satan. I read up a little bit this week just on the effects of anger on your physical health. Uh, That anger uh, stimulates the fight or flight uh, response. And so people who are repeatedly anger do significant, can do significant damage to their heart, to their blood vessels, producing producing constricting uh, uh, blood vessels, hardening of the arteries, all of these kinds of things that anger, the effects of it can have on your health. You can be angry with one another but not sin. Uh, Number three, you can share with one another. You could share with one another. It's kind of interesting that this is in here, but I love it because this means that some, you know, some thugs had come to faith in Ephesus. Uh, some, some lazy people, some people who'd rather steal than work because Paul says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. When, I, when we talked to men a couple of weeks ago, I talked clearly about working let me address something this morning that's, is, that's an issue in our county, and it's most likely an issue with someone sitting in the room. The most significant issue, and we have several folks here who work at DSS who can uh, validate what I'm getting ready to say, the most significant issue in poor communities are deadbeat parents who do not financially support their children. As a matter of fact, uh, right now, there's $108 billion owed in child support in this country. $108 billion owed in child support. You as taxpayers are taking care of $53 billion of that. What does that mean? That means when a, a deadbeat dad... And it's usually a deadbeat dad because 82%, 82% of parents who are owed child support are women. So it's usually a deadbeat dad who won't work, won't pay his bills, and when he does it and doesn't pay his child support, somebody has to take care of the kid. So who ends up taking care of the kid? Taxpayers do. Somebody has to get the kid to the dentist. Somebody has to get the kid to the doctor. 
And so you have this string of deadbeat parents, some women, mostly men, who refuse to work for whatever reason. They won't work. They don't pay their child support. And the result is that you and I as taxpayers foot the bill. Or that these women, most of whom, most are women, live lives that are well below the poverty line. Why? For a mom who's got a man who ought to be paying child support, she depends on that to this degree. It is 45% of her income. Let me ask you a question. What would you do if tomorrow you went into work and discovered that your income was cut by 45%, what would you do? How would you pay your bills? How would that work for you? I just want to say to you, with all the love in my heart, but also firmness, if you sit here this morning and you ate breakfast and you have children who are dependent on you because you participated in the act that brought them into this world and you are not providing for them, shame on you. It is your place to man up, to woman up, and take responsibility for the children you brought into the world. It's your place. You say, well, Jerry, I'm glad I came. I feel great about myself now. By the end of the sermon, we're all going to realize how none of us can feel great about ourselves. I just happen to need to pinpoint you now. And for all the people who will podcast the sermon, uh, this is for you. Just because you're not sitting in here listening to it live this morning, this is for you too. Absolutely critical. You can share with one another. What happens to these believers is that they've been stealing before they came to Christ, and now they're working. And not only are they not stealing, they're sharing stuff. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I believe that Christian dads who have children under the care of someone should so provide for those children that when it comes time for those children to go to college, that Christian dad steps up to the surprise of the mother and says, I have been working this extra job. And I'm ready to send them. You want to be a testimony to your spouse or your former spouse or the mother of your children? Do something like that. Do something like that. You can share with one another. Number four, you can build up one another. Check this out. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. All right, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. I looked that word up. It's a cool word. It's a gross word, but it's a cool word. The word corrupting means rotten. All right, it simply means rotten. Uh, It's used two other times in all of the New Testament, and here's what it refers to. On one occasion, it refers to rotten fruit. That's gross, isn't it? But rotten fruit is not near as gross. It's not near as gross as rotten fish. That's what it refers to in the other time. All right, it's rotten fruit or it's rotten fish. 
I don't want either, but rotten fish is nasty. I mean, it is absolutely nasty. All right, so I grew up uh, hunting occasionally. I know you find that hard to believe, but come from a family of hunters, we went hunting and fishing. I grew up doing that. We seldom went to the beach, all right? We didn't go to the beach because you, all, most of you know I wore blue jeans, mowing grass, doing everything. It was a sin to wear shorts uh, growing up the way I grew up. So it's, it's hard to go to the beach with blue jeans on. We did one time. People looked at us weird. We went out on the beach with our blue jeans. I'm just saying we did. All right, people looked at us a little strange. My sister's sitting here. She could corroborate this story, but we did it. But we were somewhat ignorant of shellfish and how they work. I mean, we saw seashells, and we thought we should bring them home. (laughs) We didn't know you should clean that gook out, all right? That's living matter until it dies out of the water. And I remember heading home at some point and smelling something awful. It was horrible. Do you know what it was? Rotten clams, rotten shellfish, nasty, gross, stinking, stinking up the whole vehicle, nasty mess. Anybody ever smelled that? Oh, it's awful. Have you ever said something, and as soon as it gets out of your mouth, you go, oh, rotten fish. Oh, that I could just take it, but it's like taking that smell and trying to corral it. It doesn't matter what you put it in. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get out of any corner, any crevice, any opening in the container. So are those corrupting words that we can say. And what happens in marriage is that uh, anger escalates and bitterness sets in. And rather than building up one another, we infuse some rottenness into our communication. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion. So how might that work? I love what Emerson Egret shared in his book, Love and Respect, one of the best books I've ever read on marriage. In his book, Love and Respect, he talks about the most unlikely couple to make it in, one of, in the neighborhood where he lived. He said they were just so unlikely. Nobody would ever think this couple would make it. They were kind of rough around the edges, he says. They, uh, they just didn't seem to be the likely couple. But here's what she would do. He loved to piddle outside, had ramps that he'd pull up his vehicles on and work on them. And she'd just sit out there and watch him. He said, I'd drive down the road. And he would sit out there and just watch her work. Or she would sit out there and watch him work. What was she doing? She was just building him up. I mean, women, we're we're easy, all right? We're we're just easy. All you have to do, it doesn't matter what we do, just say good job. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter. I mean, it honestly doesn't matter. If you think it's an okay job, just, you know, lie to us. I'm kidding. I said we shouldn't do that. Um, but, uh, But seriously, that's all. That's it. Like, if you will do that. If you will say that, there is something that does to a man, that builds a man up, such as fits the occasion. So when he gets it right, say it. Say it. Let me just throw something else in, too. I I do not have a a nagging wife at all. Uh, She's fantastic about that. She just doesn't nag. But nagging seldom gets anything done. 
All right? It seldom works. And if it does, you're aggravated once you've nagged and gotten it done. Why? Because then it frustrates you that your husband was so stinking weak that the only reason he would get it done is when you nagged him. I'm right. Like, once you've nagged, nag, 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 and he's gotten it done, then you're like, ah. Oh. Why do I have to nag to get anything done? Gary Chapman in his book, uh, uh, The Five Love Languages, or in a talk about that that I, I was privileged to hear, he talks about a woman who comes into his office and she, she's got a husband and he can never, ever, ever, he won't ever get anything done around the house, nothing done around the house. She is guttering, need cleaning out, walls need painting, just a list. And he said, uh, she said, I, I don't know, he doesn't love me. If he loved me, he would. And she, he looked at her and said, listen, here, I'm going to give you one assignment. What is it? She was ready. All right, she's ready. Pencil pad out. He said, don't say a word. Another word about anything you need done. She said, what? Nothing will get done. And he said, no, 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 no. Don't say another word. You need to let it go. Don't say another single word. And anything he does right, compliment him on it. We're easy, women. I'm just saying, we're so simple. We're easy. And so she left his office. She was frustrated with Gary. She left his office. She comes back in about a month. She said, I've got a different husband. He said, well, tell me about it. She said, well, I've just said good job for two or three little things. All of a sudden, he's painting walls. He's cleaning the guttering. All this stuff I've wanted him to do, he started to do. Why? Nagging doesn't work. Nagging doesn't work. Fitting words do. Husbands, what about you? Women are so sensitive about their appearance. They are so sensitive about it, more than you. You say, prove it. How much time did you take getting ready this morning? All right? And how much time did she take getting ready? So what do you do? You compliment her. Words that fit the occasion. You compliment her. You tell her she looks good in whatever she's wearing. You compliment the servant-hearted things she does for you. Words such as fit the occasion. Research has shown you need five to one. Five encouraging for every negative. Five to one. This can roll over into parenting. Catching your kids, getting it right. This can roll over into work. Many of you, many of you are bosses. Do you catch your people getting it right? we got to horde of teachers in this room. Do you catch your kids getting it right? You can build up one another. Your words are like bricks that build, uh, build a protective wall around your marriage. Men, if you don't compliment the way she looks, somebody at work will. If you don't do this, Somebody will. Satan hates your marriage. He doesn't want it to work. He'll raise up somebody who'll do what you ought to be doing. You can be kind to one another, number five. Look at this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. You can be kind to one another. How do you do it? You put away some stuff. Bitterness, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, you put them away. 1 Corinthians 13 says love keeps no record of wrongs. There are some things you just have to put away. And if you cannot 
put them away, your marriage will not survive, let alone thrive. You have to put them away. What are these things? Bitterness, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. They're all relational strongholds that Satan puts in to a marriage and that life can put into a marriage. Bitterness. Bitterness is like drinking your own poison hoping the other person will die. Bitterness is dangerous. Bitterness is devastating. Uh, I looked up some stuff from Psychology Today. Psychology Today, a secular resource uh, this week that said, unlike anger, which is stimulated by real incidents or thoughts, chronic resentment is a general ego defense. If you are chronically resentful, you got an ego problem, is what the writer says. Uh, For those most in need, ego defense is more important than learning truth and reason. You want to hang out with a rational person. Find somebody who's got an ego problem and trying to defend their ego. They'll say the dumbest things. Do the dumbest things. All right. I love the teenagers in this room. I love you guys. You're all flanking the front, as you always do, and I love that. But you tend to defend your egos most in your teenage years, and all the rest of us will sit back and just go, okay, as some of the things you do. Ego defense. Here's what psychology today says. Over time, resentment becomes a worldview or a way of life. What happens is you take off the lens of forgiveness. Like right now, I'm blind, okay? And so I cannot see you. I see a lot of people, but I can make out no facial features, all right? That's how bad my vision is. And so I put these on, and I can see you clearly. And some people, when they take off the glasses of forgiveness and put on the glasses of bitterness, every person they see is against them. You've been around these people. Every person they see is against them. The world is against me. I'm a victim. I am just just subject to all of this. They watch the news, and the news is against them. The government is against them. Uh, Their neighbors are against them. Their children are against them. Their mom and dad are against them. That's how they live. Bitterness will get you there. If you do not learn to put some things away, you will live a life looking through the lens of bitterness, and no one will be able to stand you. No one. It is no place to be. It becomes a worldview. And they go on to say it leads to some form of verbal or emotional abuse. And eventually, they say, if the couple hangs in there, to contempt and disgust. And I've seen it in my office. I've sat with couples. I've watched them look at each other. And somewhere at some point, they stood on a stage and looked all goo-goo-eyed each other. And tears may have come down. And they stammered through these vows. And they just couldn't wait for marriage. And all of a sudden, they sit in my office. And they can't stand each other. One disgusts the other. Why? Bitterness is a stairway that leads straight to hell. 
A bitter person is most difficult to reach with the gospel. Why? There's no good news. And it's everybody else's fault. I personally believe, personally, have no proof of this, that bitterness leads to multiple physical ailments, multiple physical disease. I personally believe that bitterness is so constricting on an individual that it is often, not always at all, often connected to personal depression. Often. You can be kind to one another. Finally, you can forgive one another. Notice this. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Many of you, a few years ago, we're in the middle of Lent, or at the beginning of Lent, uh, headed right toward Easter, and a few years ago, you watched The Passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson's portrayal, vivid movie uh, depicting the death of Jesus Christ. In that movie, Mel Gibson appears twice in the movie, two times. Uh, Neither time his face appears, his hand, both times. Uh, One appearance in the movie is when they bring the woman caught in adultery to Jesus. And uh, so she's caught in adultery and Jesus talks to them about, okay, if if you uh, have no sin, pick up a stone and throw at her. Most likely she was naked when they found her, wrapped up in a sheet. And uh, Jesus stoops down and writes in the sand. And it's Gibson's hand writing, doing the writing there. Nobody knows what Jesus wrote. The second time that Gibson appears in the movie, his hand is holding the hammer and he's nailing Jesus to the cross. When asked why, his response was, whether genuine or not, I do not know, this was his response, because it was my sin that put him there. What Paul says here, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? Just as God in Christ forgave you. So here's the exercise I send you out with. God forgave you in Christ. What does that mean? Here's what it would mean if I Take it in my family. You have sinned tremendously against me. The only way I can forgive you, let's say, is to forgive you in Trent. He's my boy. Far from this. He's committed no sin. I put him up on your behalf. I lose my son that you may gain life. I lose my son that you may be forgiven. Your sin is that bad. My love is that great. That's the gospel. God in Christ forgave you. He put up his son 
who died on the cross because your sin was that bad and his love was that great. So here's the exercise. Get a legal pad. Start making a list of all the sins you've ever committed. Just start writing. Write and write and write and write, okay? Then get another pad and start making a list of everything she's done to you or he's done to you. At the end of the day, if that list is longer than yours, then don't forgive her. At the end of the day, if that list is longer than yours, then don't forgive him. But according to Ephesians 4.32, that day will never come. That day will never come. And we sit here today forgiven because God in Christ did it. That's the only reason we can sing these songs. That's the only reason you can attempt marriage because God in Christ did it. So, Jerry, what do I do? Well, I've given you a list of six things, or Scripture has. But I would say to anybody in this room, if you sit here this morning and think there is something that you could do to earn that kind of forgiveness, you are not ready to receive the greatest gift God could ever give anybody. And that's his boy, his sinless, perfect son. God in Christ forgave you. We're going to sing a song. Would you bow your heads? As you do, I think there are a couple of things that are going on inside. Number one, some of you are thinking, I haven't forgiven. I'm holding a grudge that has to be over. I've got to let it go. How do I go about that? As God in Christ forgave you. For some of you, the very first step is coming to faith in Christ. That is the very first step. You need to trust Christ as your Savior. You say, Jerry, I I so want to do that. I'm blown away that God in Christ has done that for me. How do I receive that? Pray. Simply pray to him and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know as a sinner I have offended you. I've offended so many people. I'm sorry. I receive right now. I turn from my sin and I receive right now forgiveness of my sins. I want God in Christ to forgive me. Jesus, I am trusting you. I am receiving your forgiveness right now. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. If you've just done that, welcome to the family, member of the body of Christ. You're poised to become a forgiving giant. And then there are others of you, you have legitimate grudges that need to go. Don't walk out of here with them. Forgive.
Father, do your work your way in the great saving sacrifice of Jesus, we pray. Amen.